Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mark Molina, CEO of Molina Leadership Solutions. Uh, today, we are continuing with our ongoing series, Women in Leadership. Our guest today is Debbie Farr. Debbie is a managing uh, manager of community relations for Trillium Community Health Plans, and she is also a Bethel School District board member. And her husband, Pat Farr, <clears throat> excuse me, is a, an elected official in, within the capacity of county commissioner here where we live. Uh, Debbie, thank you for your willingness to participate today. I have known you for, seems like almost two decades now, and you have been a consummate leader. You have been a consummate, consummate visible leader, vocal leader, uh, highly participatory in the arena of improving community and improving livability here in Lane County and in Eugene. Uh, good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm happy it's Friday. Yes. <laughs> it's it, been a long week. Yes, ma'am. So tell us a little bit about, uh, before we continue on in your leadership journey, any educational achievements you'd like to share? Well, I um, attended the University of Oregon. Uh, that's where I met Pat, my husband. Um, we met as freshmen. We lived in the dorms uh, across from each other. I lived in, uh, we lived in Bean Hall. I lived in Henderson. He lived in Ganoe. And uh, we met spring term. Well, we met fall term, but um, we connected spring term. And so the rest is history. Uh, we stayed in Eugene that uh, I don't think was what either of us thought we would do, but, um, you know, as, as our lives evolved, uh, Eugene became home and um, then we raised a family here and, um, you know, it's been a long time. So I've actually lived in Eugene longer than I've lived anywhere else. So um, you graduated from the U of O? I did not get my bachelor's degree. Um, I always thought that I would go back and get my bachelor's degree someday. Um, and a few years ago, I actually started taking steps towards doing that. But then when I looked at um, the cost of getting a degree um, versus the amount of time I had left in the workforce, I decided that I was going to uh, put that money towards helping my kids pay off their student loan debt. <laughs> And, uh, and so I, I eventually decided that I would not get, get, get the degree. Um, if I had a, if you ask me what my biggest regret in life would be, I would say it would be not getting um, my bachelor's degree and then getting my master's degree. Um, all three of our kids, between the three of them, they have three master's degrees and a PhD. And our oldest son is also a licensed, um, he has an LCSW, so licensed clinical social worker. Uh, he works for Lane County Mental Health. And uh, so that, that would be a regret that I have. Uh, but, you know, life happens, right? Um, I left school to work uh, and I entered the workforce. Um, then we started a family. And you know that that further changed my plans, but um, you know it, it. I think we all have regrets. Um, I I don't regret the, the people that I met along the way, the things I learned. Uh, don't regret having those three amazing kids, and really putting my heart and soul into motherhood, because I felt like that was important. You know that I owed that to them. 
Education comes in many forms, and leadership comes in many forms. And I think it's important we, we stop to realize that and recognize that, that life happens, and we adjust to the de immediate demands, we adjust to the, the demands in the moment. And I think, you know, it hasn't affected your ability to be a, gr a wonderful community leader, a highly respected community leader. It hasn't not completing your degree at the U of O hasn't affected your ability to make a living, to be to have profound impact, to have profound effect, to raise your family. I mean, your husband, I know he graduated, correct? He didn't get his degree either. No, he did not graduate from the University of Oregon. I, I shouldn't have assumed, but I'm trying to remember because I love seeing all the pictures of you too when you first <laughs> met in college on Facebook and the long hair and the bell bottoms and the flip flops. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I know that Pat was an officer in the army, correct? That's right. He was in the Oregon Army National Guard. Okay. And he's a Vietnam vet? He is not a Vietnam vet. He's uh, just a veteran of service in the Oregon Army National Guard. He, he, did, he was never deployed. I was trying to remember all the specifics, but I guess the point is this, is that I, I wasn't, I'm just trying to make the point, you and your husband are two highly profound, distinct, recognizable, highly respected leaders. And you didn't, and, and some people can get that on a college campus, but some people get that uh, distinction because they do the hard, hard work every single day and they become respected for doing that hard, hard work every single day. And that's you and your husband. Thank you for saying that. I really appreciate that. And so your leadership journey may not have gone through four years of the U of O, but it went through 18 years, three times over, raising those children and working in the workforce and you know being a, a wife and a mother and an employee and all of those things. And so I think you have every reason. We all have regrets. You know, we all look back and th sometimes we think things would have could have been different. But we are where we are and we make the best of it. And you and your husband have done that. So let's talk about some of your earliest endeavors into leadership. Was it when you were a mom? Was it with the PTA? Were you a coach uh, for your kids? What are some of the early things that you remember doing? So I would say that it probably all does relate um, to the kids when they were younger um, because I wanted to get involved in their education. I've always been a big believer in public education. Um, and so they started, uh, the oldest started kindergarten and there were some things that I saw um, and it was eye-opening um, and I wanted to be more involved. And so I, uh, I had uh, become friends with some of the, um, well, with one of the teachers and then a couple of the classified members uh, at Clear Lake Elementary. And that's where all three of our kids attended in Bethel. Um, and they said, well, you should be part of the PTO, you know? And at that point, um, it wasn't a formal organization. It was called the Parent Group at Clear Lake. And so um, they encouraged me to be involved. And uh, so I started going to meetings of the parent group. And, um, you know, we did everything from uh, classroom parties, you know, so I'd be the classroom mom that helped organize uh, the parties that we had. Um, 
And then we decided we needed new playground equipment. So we had some money in reserve. We bought a commercial popcorn popper and we popped popcorn every Friday and we sold it to the kids. And I can't remember how much we sold it for, but you know, it was a small amount and they got a little red and white striped bag of popcorn. And then, so we popped it, then we delivered it to the classrooms, to all the classrooms, delivered it to the kids that had ordered it. And, um, and then that's how we raised money for playground equipment. Wow. But, you know, looking back on that now, Mark, I think about all the kids who could never buy popcorn. And, um, and that, that's disappointing to me that we didn't figure out a way that we could give popcorn to everybody. We, we did do that on occasion. You know, on occasion, we would pop enough popcorn that we could, um, you know, give, deliver it to every classroom and every child got a bag of popcorn. But what we know now about equity, um, it, you know, and Bethel is a high poverty district. Um, and that's what was most eye-opening to me. Um, we bought our first house in Bethel. We, um, that's where we had our first child. And then we realized um, immediately as we started a family that that house was not a good house to raise a family in. It was on a cul-de-sac off of Royal and Royal is a pretty busy street. It was even busier then, um, or as busy, I guess I should say. And so we started looking for a bigger house and one that was, you know, in an area where there weren't, there weren't gonna be any cars traveling except the people that lived there. And so we did that. And um, that was the house that we lived in when our kids started school. Um, and I think it was a, you know, it was a fairly new subdivision. Um, I didn't really fully understand what the families faced in Bethel at that point. I didn't realize that there were so many families in poverty. But then as I got to know our oldest son's friends and their parents, um, I saw a very different picture. Mm -hmm. And so really that was for me, my first introduction to um, the disparities that exist in our community and the barriers that so many families face. And I um, felt very fortunate that we, uh, you know, had jobs that we could provide for our family. Um, we were very lucky and we always instilled that in our kids. Um, and all three of our kids are very involved in social justice. So there may be something that you're gonna ask me later relating to that, but um, they remember growing up and they definitely felt privileged. You started talking about the high poverty of Bethel and some of the equity issues and your tone of voice changed, your physical demeanor changed, as far as I saw a shift in your physical body, your facial expressions changed. That really impacted you. It did, yeah. It was kind of an incredible um, introduction to a world that I was not familiar with. And I grew up in a small town in Oregon called Silverton. Oh yeah. Um, Silverton is a very different town now than it was when I lived there. Um, and there was poverty there too. Um, and I know I went to school with kids that 
um, you know, had barriers that I didn't have. Um, and, you know, I was able to recognize that, but, uh, but this level of poverty was very different. What was it like? I'm not from here. So what was the economy like in that time frame? When your children were little, was there industry? What kind of industries might have been present outside of Warehouser? Yeah, I think that, um, well, our oldest child was born in 1981 um, and started kindergarten um, the fall that he uh, turned six. So, um, you know, so it was at a time in the 80s when things were starting to change, right? Um, it was uh, kind of a bad economic time, but um, jobs and mills weren't as plentiful. And, um, you know, but then we didn't have the generational poverty then to the degree that we have now, but there still was generational poverty. Mm -hmm. And I think that was an introduction for me um, that I just, I just didn't have any life experience with. You know, you're in the realm now, you're manager of community relations for Trillium Community Health Plans. What's it like working for a healthcare organization and trying to deal with generational poverty, making, endeavoring to provide healthcare that's affordable and accessible to some of the, the those suffering financially? I mean, that's, that's a big part of what we do. Um, Trillium is the Medicaid provider, one of two Medicaid providers in Lane County. Uh, Trillium's been um, managing the Oregon Health Plan um, for more than 20 years, but we've been a coordinated care organization since 2012. We were the, the sole CCO, that's the acronym for coordinated care organization, because that's a mouthful. Um, we, we were the sole provider until 2020, and that's when Pacific Source um, became the second CCO in Lane County. So we, we serve people that qualify for the Oregon Health Plan. Um, the uh, federal poverty level, um, we, uh, adults can earn up to 138%. Um, to qualify, um, and that's that's really low. I think it's around eighteen thousand for an individual, thirty-two for family of four. Um, but um, children can qualify if their parents earn up to three hundred percent of FPL, um, and that's if they don't have access to other health insurance, like through you know through their employer. Uh, so, one of the things that I do at Trillium is I work with our community advisory and rural advisory councils. And OHA um, requires that CCOs have those councils um, and that they be 51% OHP consumers. So um, we have Oregon Health Plan consumers that serve um, in that capacity. And the whole purpose of those um, advisory councils is to really help the CCO understand what are the barriers? What are the challenges that our members face? What's working and what isn't? Um, there, you know, maybe access issues. Maybe 
um, dental providers aren't accepting patients. Maybe there's a shortage of mental health services, which you know there is. Um, there could be barriers around transportation. Uh, member engagement is another piece. Are, are members going to their appointments when they've scheduled them? And if they're not, why? And how can we help turn that around? Um, because really, you know, we're very member centric. So we're focused on the members of the plan. Um, and then we're focused on next on the providers because they're the ones that are providing the care. And then there's a, a, a component that involves the entire community. Um, we are um, managing, one of the managing partners of the Community Health Improvement Plan. That's a collaborative uh, in Lane County. It's Lane County, both CCOs, Trillium and Pacific Source, Peace Health, um, the biggest hospital system and United Way. Um, and the, the partners put money into a pool and we pay for staff at United Way to um, really manage that because it's a giant project. Um, and so we just adopted our most recent community health improvement plan for five years. And those advisory council members are a big part of that. Um, their, uh, their involvement is key. And we give regular reports to Oregon Health Authority, our regulatory body, about where we are in the plan. So we develop focus areas and strategies and then have tactics, maybe a project um, relating to one of those focus areas where we can really um, demonstrate or measure our improvement uh, and then later our success. Hopefully we'll be able to come back in five years and say we were able to make this change that improved health in the community. <clears throat> this is such a huge and important topic. The things that we have learned as, an, as communities regarding the area of people getting to getting to their appointments having access when i got out of the army and came here i got out in 95 and came here and i was in my first marriage at the time and couldn't find work didn't have medical didn't have dental had three small kids having to take trying to find free clinics having to go on food stamps because i couldn't find work I remember my kids crying because we all the kids in the classroom got books and we didn't have money to get their, their book orders and books would come and the orders would come in and they you know it just what it is that's just what it was no no one's to blame but I'm I guess I'm saying that to remember the hardships on them the the embarrassment if you will not not understanding uh, again but as leaders you as a leading in this area, your exposure to families and children and education from the time your children were in school, you saw a lot of economic shifts here in this area. This is where you've been now. You saw the housing market crash. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Economy has shut down. Debbie, why is it important? What do we as leaders, community leaders, need to know from someone like you who are, who is in this every day trying to help communities what what is important that we should know about why access to health public health issues are should be important to us across the board yeah thank you for asking that question mark um you know people think of health care and they think that 
maintaining good health is just healthcare, right? You can go to the doctor and it's paid for, or the dentist, or um, you can get mental health counseling. And that is important. They're right, it is. But that's, you know, about 10% of somebody's health. About 90% is the social determinants of health, which many of us take for granted. We have four walls and a roof over our head. We have access to clean water. Um, we, and, and when I say a roof over our head and four walls, a safe, stable living environment. Um, we you know, don't live in an abusive household where maybe substances are used. We um, have transportation, we have a car. Or if we don't have a car, it's because we choose to ride public transportation. Um, or we have a bicycle, we have some form of transportation. Um, we have access to good nutritious food, healthy food. We can go to the store and we can buy the food that we wanna eat. We can buy fresh produce, all of those kinds of things. So all of, and education, definitely education. Now we know that public education is open to everyone. All children have access to public education. But we also know, and as a school board member, I know, that um, one of our focuses, big focuses, is on equity and inclusion. And what, what can we do to make school a welcoming environment for all kids? What can we do to um, improve the environment so that when kids come to school, they feel like they're on a level playing field? And then education um, goes beyond, you know, well, it starts in preschool. So I guess I, I, guess I left that out. Not all kids go to preschool, right? Some kids can qualify for programs like Head Start because of their parents' income level. And um, some kids are left out because their parents earn too much, but they don't earn enough for them to afford to send them to, um, to preschool because we don't have universal preschool yet. I, I do hope someday soon we will be able to offer that. Um, we do have all day kindergarten now, so that's a good thing because um, you know, parents don't have to struggle with figuring out how they're going to take their kid to kindergarten and pick them up in the middle of the workday when it's a two and a half hour um, slot. But anyway, I'm sorry, I, um, I rambled a little bit there. But I mean, I think we've got to think about preschool. We've got to think about childcare. How do parents afford that? Childcare is very expensive. And um, so, you know, all of those things, all of those social determinants of health, a safe, stable, living environment, a, a place to live, food, um, transportation, you know, you put all that together and families that don't have it um, or families that are living just on the edge of being able to keep it, that creates a lot of stress. And that stress can cause substance use. Um, it can cause uh, mental illness. You know, there's just a, there's a lot of things. It's all interconnected. Um, I don't think there's anybody who might be listening to this that hasn't seen the explosion of homeless camps in our city. Not just in Eugene, I know in, probably in Springfield too. I don't go to Springfield as much right now um, as I used to, but um, you know, we, I see it everywhere I go. And it isn't just adults. There are families that are homeless too. And there are families that you don't see in the homeless camps. They're living in their car or van or they're staying 
with other family members and their situation is very precarious because you know they could be asked to leave and if they're asked to leave then they don't have anywhere else to go so uh, i mean and that that is something that um when you ask me about um, my first involvement in um being a community leader i think it starts back in those early days when my kids were in elementary school and i saw families that were really struggling and um, and actually some families that were homeless. At that point, there was a homeless shelter on Highway 99. Um, there were some motels there. Some are still there um, where people would, you know, go to live because they couldn't afford first and last month's rent. Um, but th so those are things that we are addressing at Trillium. Um, not just Trillium, but all coordinated care organizations are um, expected to produce a plan to OHA that shows how we're going to invest in social determinants of health, um, what we're going to do beyond uh, the services that are paid for through Oregon Health Plan. Um, they're called health-related services because sometimes somebody needs something that, you know, it isn't covered. It isn't a healthcare benefit. It isn't covered, but it is going to help them be healthy. And so those are things that we look at as well. Uh, you know, so, so really, um, you know, that's it. That's, that's key to having a healthier community. If you're addressing people on the very, you know, lowest um, part of the economic ladder and you're helping them um, live healthy lives, then that's going to help improve the health of everybody in the community. I think that's really critical that we understand that, um, when we were down in South Texas a few years ago when our daughter was born, Abigail purchased health care. And then we went through a national uh, natural birth center, birthing center. And then a mother got stuck in the birth canal. And they, we had to, had to rush Abigail off to the emergency room. And the health care plan said, well, you know, this isn't really part of the plan because you're a single payer. Uh, you, you don't belong to a big corporation. And then because uh, the mom's life wasn't in danger, only the baby's was, we're not going to pay for anything. And they didn't. And there was just all these caveats that were the health, the health insurance company could say, we don't have to pay because of this. We don't have to pay because of this. We don't have to pay because of this. And we don't have to pay because of this. And so it really compounded our stress trying to deal with all of those, um, uh, you know, literally tens of thousands of dollars from this emergency surgery. And Abigail was just trying to start her law practice. We were living on, on beans and tortillas, so to speak. And the, the collections company would call and say, but, but ma'am, you're an attorney. You should be able to pay all your bills right away in the assumptions that we make. And bring that up to say the assumptions that we make, them not realizing how hard we're working to try to, you know, live our lives, build a law practice. She was trying to build a practice. I was pastoring a small church. I wasn't getting paid. And it was already the poorest county in the nation where we were. And so I learned a lot in that. I bring that up, Debbie, because I learned a lot in that time frame about access to health care why insurance is necessary for people who are struggling financially 
And if you don't have that kind of support, the, the trauma to the family of the financial distress, it is inexplicable. What types of things is Trillium doing? If it's, if it's okay, can we keep talking about this? Because yeah. I'd like to learn more as a community leader. I don't know much about these things. And this is your area now of service and, and developing expertise. So how can we as leaders understand this problem more about the impact of, of non-available insurance or a family's inability to afford insurance? Yeah, I know that's a big one um, because not everyone who needs uh, the Oregon Health Plan qualifies because they earn just a little bit too much. Um, you know, so a, a number of years ago when the Affordable Care Act expanded uh, Medicaid, they also started um, what's called the marketplace. And that's where people that don't have health insurance through their work can go and buy health care. And there are different levels, different plan levels, depending on what you need, bronze, silver, and gold. Um, and I am not as familiar with the marketplace now as I once was. We don't have a a plan on the marketplace, uh, but but those plans are there and they exist and they're, they're I guess I wanna say somewhat affordable, they're still not affordable for everybody. And I do know that, um, you know, some people would, would buy a, a very low cost plan um, and they wouldn't really be able to use it because the co-pays were still so high. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it wasn't an answer, but we do have, um, organizations like Volunteers in Medicine in the community that um, will see anyone um, and they accept payments on a sliding scale. If you can't afford to pay anything, you don't have to. Um, and then the community health centers of Lane County also um, will see anyone. Uh, but I know it isn't always easy to get an appointment there if you don't have, if you aren't established with a provider. Um, we have to change that. And, um, you know, we hear a lot about uh, Medicare for all, healthcare for all, uh, public option, um, something that provides access to healthcare for everybody, whatever your income level. And I do think that, um, you know, right now, when you look at Medicaid and uh, Medicare, just the, you know, the options that anyone can get at no cost, it's probably not really sustainable. Um, doctors don't get paid as much for taking those um, types of health insurance as they do commercial plans. And so um, I wish I had the answers. I wish I could say that, you know, we, we know how to solve it. I think we know how to solve it, but even then um, Oregon at one time was looking at um, doing what a couple other states do and offering a um, healthcare plan to all their residents. But the cost of um, standing up a program like that was, you know, significant. It just wasn't, it wasn't affordable for the state to do it. Even, even if they believed it was the right thing to do, there wasn't money in the budget to make that happen. <coughs> Excuse me. So in the end, uh, it's really probably going to have to come at the federal level. Um, there's gonna to have to be the will to make those changes and 
Um, we'll see what happens. Uh, there will still be a need for organizations like Trillium to manage um, because people think, well, you know, you just, you get this option and everybody has health insurance and then, you know, everything just works and, and everything's paid for. I don't have to worry if I have to go to the doctor. And, and that, that part may be true, but there's still all the work that has to be done, the connecting patients to providers, the approval of the, the um, procedure and service, the claim that comes through that has to be paid, um, all of that. So it's a big, big system. And somebody is still going to have to manage all of that. <clears throat> There is so much information as well as misinformation on this subject. I wish I understood it better. I wish I could give a sound, practical presentation on the, the benefits of, um, I think it's time we find universal health care in this country. I think we need to establish a universal health care system in this country because right now, um, you know, we're able to afford as a family health care benefits via the Springfield Area Chamber of Commerce or in that co-op with the Ben Chamber for small businesses, or we'd, we'd be in a lot of trouble if we, if we didn't have that resource. And, you know, when I, years ago when I started working post-Army, and I, got, I was able to find a job that paid me health benefits, I sustained a leg injury while running, jumping out of the way of a car, a guy was running me over and drove off and left me there. Um, and I went to the doctor and they sent me to a physical therapist and they told me how much it would be for the treatment. I couldn't afford it. And so I left damage, I scar tissue on my leg where I couldn't run for, th for 13 years because of that, that uh, scar tissue that built up because I couldn't afford the physical therapy payments. The, you know, the, it wasn't the co-pays, it was my portion of the cost of that. So, you know, those things are real, how people are affected by not a very good policy because it's all they can afford. And if you have, if you can afford a really good policy, then you get, a, then you have access to really good options, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so how, how can we, in your estimation, I know this is going to be a really big question, but I'm asking you because I have you with me and that you're, you're, you're my captive audience for this question. What can we do about it? I mean, really, how, I mean, here locally, how can we help the people that need it the most? I think I've asked this now three times. I don't know why I keep asking you this, but it's a burden on my heart because I see the uh, unhoused. I see the people that don't have access. I see the people who, uh, this one girl I met out at LCC one time, She her, her, her gums were all infected and I came home and I told uh, Abigail, we gotta help her. So we gave her money so that she could go to the dentist and and get some work done, because her it was it was it was a terrible sight, and she was homeless. She was unhoused and living in her car and trying to go to LCC so she could improve herself, you know, uh, you know down the road. Is there anything? Is it just unrealistic, Debbie, for us as community leaders to think that we can have any kind of impact? No, it isn't. And what I would encourage you to do next time you come across someone like that is to find out, um, you know, talk to somebody at LCC. They used to have a student health center there um, and they don't now, but I'm sure they have somebody in student services 
that you could go to and they in turn could, could, could have connected her to someone like Whitebird um, or another organization that could get her dental care. Um, she probably qualifies for the Oregon Health Plan, you know, just because of her income level alone. And um, it and Whitebird could help. Uh, they have people on staff that can help her sign up or help someone else sign up for the Oregon Health Plan. Um, and, you know, we do that all the time. Um, and that's important. Trillium can't do that. So the providers of the Oregon Health Plan, we can't help people go through the sign-up process. Um, eligibility is all determined through Oregon Health Authority, but there are lots of people throughout the community that work for those organizations. And LCC may have some on staff as well um, that could help her jump through all of those hoops. Um, and I say hoops because, you know, there's a lot of information you have to put in, people get discouraged, or maybe she, you know, the battery on her computer isn't going to hold out, uh, you know, and or, or her patience is probably going to go before um, the battery, but somebody that can just really help walk her through that process, get that submitted, you know, get her eligibility determined and then get her signed up immediately, get her assigned to a CCO so that then she can start getting healthcare. And dental benefits are available um, to all adults now. It used to be just children through um, age 22. Um, I, I, I care, um, eye exams um, are, or glasses actually are available only for um, uh, kids through age 22, but dental benefits are available to everybody. And not everyone knows that because that, that was another thing that the ACA changed. And not every state made the uh, significant improvements that Oregon made, but because of our leadership here and because of, um, you know, the way that we were already approaching healthcare. And I mean, CCOs that we're, we're unique in Oregon that we have these coordinated care organizations and they're, they're designed by nature to help our members of the Oregon Health Plan get all of those services, make sure they get their, they have access to a primary care provider. So they get those regular screenings. They, they have access to a flu shot, all of those things. Um, then that they can get oral health care because you can't maintain your physical health if you have rotting teeth, like you said, so painful and just, I mean, yeah, it's, it's not a good situation for anyone to be in. And then mental health as well, because, you know, it's all connected. And um, so that, that was why coordinated care organizations were first um, designed. And that was back in Governor Kitzhaber's day. And um, whatever people think about Governor Kitzhaber and, you know, everything that happened uh, in his political career, that was something we can thank him for. That is his legacy in Oregon. Um, the Oregon Health Plan and Coordinated Care Organizations. So listening to your response, one of the things we can do as leaders is, is be aware of the fact that there are, the, there are resources out in the community. There are places we can refer people to that need help because I didn't even think about asking the young lady at the time, did you ask the school for help? Did you go to the dental clinic that is that was there at that time? All I saw was this need and, and realizing I could do something about it for her and support of her in that moment, but not considered 
referring her to uh, uh, outside of that conversation? Well, I mean, I don't think you did anything wrong, Mark, because you got her um, help immediately. And um, sometimes that's more important. But it would be nice if you still have contact with her to find out if she's, um, you know, maybe she's working now and going to school. Maybe she's not eligible for OHP, um, but chances are she is. And so if she is, she should definitely take advantage of that benefit. I actually ran into her about four years ago <laughs> and she's doing real well and she has a little job and, and uh, she, as far as her dental issues, they were resolved and she looked very happy and hopeful and, and was doing well. It's great. That's wonderful. Well, well, you know, you're, I mean, you're just such a kind heart, you and your wife both. I mean, you talk about leaders. Um, you certainly exemplify leadership and the way you live your life, uh, you know, your level of integrity, um, how you care about the people that live in our community uh, and want to make sure to, to see them successful. I mean, I can give you lots of examples that, um, you know, that Pat and I have uh, experiences we've had helping kids over the years. Um, it's really funny now because of social media, you know, you hear from people and um, there was a, a young woman who I don't know how we connected, but she sent me a messenger message. And this is, this is the most recent one. There've been others. And she just said, I don't know if you remember me, but I think she went to school with Luke, our youngest. Um, and a little background about Luke. Luke um, was assigned female at birth. So Luke had a different name um, when Luke was in school, um, which we don't talk about um, because Luke is Luke. <laughs> and um, anyway, uh, that's another story that we can talk about if you want to, because I'm the mother of a transgender child and I'm um, very vocal about the importance of letting people be who they really are um, so that we can be our authentic selves. Uh, but anyway, she sent me this message and she said, I just wanted to tell you that, um, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't have a stable home life and, oh, I, I'm going to get emotional. So, <clears throat> I'll get control here, but uh, she just said that um, she came to our house on a few occasions and I did remember her. And she said that she just, you know, she said that what she saw made her realize that she didn't have that, but that someday when she was an adult and she had a family of her own, that that's what she wanted to do. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> how meaningful, right? <laughs> I don't know what we did. I don't recall how we um, demonstrated to her what a family is, but uh, she she knew. Yeah, if you don't mind, let's talk about this. This is a growing um, struggle. It, it, I don't know if a phenomena. I don't know what the right word is, Debbie. Uh, you know, when I was pastoring those years, people were, would come to me all the time asking me for help. The for the transgendered issue with their children in other areas. And what is it, what have you learned about that particular distress within a, a child or a young person? 
how did how did you help Luke through that? How did you and your husband and your family navigate that? And this is just a really timely uh, conversation. So Luke was an adult. Um, Luke was living in San Francisco and had a, a committed relationship um, with a man. Um, Luke was not Luke at that point. Uh, but Luke uh, came to us and um, we've always had a really open uh, communication with our kids and um, said, uh, I am going to go by the pronoun they, them. And we said, okay. And we didn't know anything about that. We didn't know anything about, um, you know, what that meant, you know, that you don't recognize yourself as he, him, or she, her. Um, and so Luke explained it, um, that it's gender fluid. Somebody who doesn't necessarily feel comfortable as a female or a male. And um, we kind of wrapped our brains around that. It, was, it was, wasn't easy. It was, um, you know, there was a lot of learning involved, a lot of learning, which we did. And then later Luke um, came to the realization through counseling um, that Luke really did identify as a male. And so, um, you know, Luke told us that that was um, how he was feeling. And unfortunately the relationship that he had at the time um, didn't continue, um, but, but he understood and they parted ways amicably and are still friends. Um, but then Luke started um, his journey, um, you know, really changing how he lived. I mean, he started taking um, uh, testosterone, um, has facial hair now, um, has not had any surgical procedures yet, but you know, that may be in his future. I don't wanna say too much about, you know, what Luke is feeling or, um, but, but I will say this, that it wasn't easy as parents um, because I think a lot of my identity um, is because I'm a woman. And so, um, you know, that I guess we recognize our children, you know, by their, the gender that they are. And I think that um, it, it was a growth for my husband and myself, but, you know, your child is your child. Mm -hmm. And when, when you're pregnant with that child or when you're expecting, um, men, are, men are pregnant too. They, they're not carrying the child, but they're definitely part of that experience. Um, you're, you wonder, am I gonna have a boy or a girl? A lot of times now people know, you know well in advance. Um, but you, know, you think about that, it doesn't change how you feel about that child. You love them no matter what. And um, so for us, you know, that's, that was what we realized, you know, we, we love Luke and we're gonna be there for Luke, whatever Luke needs from us. And, um, you know, I think parents, some parents struggle with guilt. Like what, what did I do? I mean, for me, it's kind of heartbreaking because I think Luke was going through all these things and I had no idea. Um, but Luke didn't necessarily have any idea either. Mm -hmm. You know, Luke Luke was different, definitely. Luke recognized that. Um, Luke actually was one of the founding um, uh, members and help, helps to start the Gay Straight Alliance at Willamette High School. 
the very first one um, way back in those days. And that was, uh, I think Luke um, probably identified as uh, bi uh, back in those days, but you know, we didn't really talk about that too much. Um, Luke, Luke was very successful uh, in high school, had a lot of friends, was very involved in uh, many different things, uh, went to a national uh, debate tournament in Macedonia following graduation and um, actually uh, was on a, a team of three speakers. Um, there was a, a somebody that was really um, experienced in English and that was Luke. And then there was a middle speaker and um, a lower um, speaker and um, that team won the debate tournament in Macedonia, which was really pretty cool. Um, a great experience for Luke to be there and and went with one other student from Willamette and their debate coach at the time. But Luke had also gone to nationals in debate a couple years, was involved in drama, sang in the choir, um, was involved in Gay Straight Alliance, um, was always looking for opportunities to help um, make life better for his fellow students. And, um, and still today he works in business. He's a manager for Starbucks in San Francisco. Um, and he um, is also a very proud barista. He competes in different barista competitions that Starbucks has, is an accomplished chef. Um, makes incredible meals and has a blog um, that's that's very well followed. Um, so yeah, he he has a good life. He's happy for the first time in his life. He's happy. He's able to live um, as his authentic self, and um, we just couldn't be prouder of him and uh, totally support him every step of the way, whatever the future holds. Um, and that's what I would tell parents to do is to learn everything they can, educate themselves, continue to love and support their child because that's their child. And it's not up to them to decide, you know, what their child is going to do. Our job is to raise them and to love them, to teach them, um, and then to let them go. And hopefully we've taught them um, so that they can go out into the world and, uh, you know, live their own life. I mean, we're always here to support them, but it's nice to know that they are confident enough that they can go out into the world. How did you help lead your family through the any questions or challenges around this issue, identif family identification around, this was what our family looked like, now it's shifting, it's adjusting, it's adapting, how can, we have conversations about it. How can we support and how can we stay engaged with one another? So our kids fortunately have always been really close. They have very close relationships. Um, uh, so I'll just, I'll let you know, our oldest um, child, Patrick, um, is a, a counselor in LCSW for Lane County Mental Health. Um, he got his master's degree at Arizona State. Um, he's married um, and they have three children. Um, Dio, who is not Patrick's biological child, but is uh, um, his wife Yolanda's child. Dio is also transgender. Um, Dio was assigned female at birth, but identifies as male. 
Um, and then, and Dio is uh, 16. Um, then they have the two littles, we call them, Yoali, who is five. You've probably seen me post on Facebook. Uh, Yoali's five and uh, Sochi, who just turned two. And our daughter-in-law, Yolanda, is um, Latinx. Um, so uh, the children are learning Spanish along with English. And, um, and then our middle child, Evan, um, is married and has one child, Clement, who's three. They live in Ohio. Um, Evan and Ann teach at a small uh, private Quaker college called Wilmington in Wilmington, Ohio. Um, Patrick, who we call Patty, and Evan are both very involved in social justice um, issues, um, racial equity issues. Um, uh, Patty, uh, just by nature of his career, um, you know, he works with people that are severely and persistently mentally ill. Um, so he, he has a lot of uh, opportunities to um, help them and hopefully transition out of, um, you know, counseling into, you know, a healthy mental status. Um, Evan um, teaching kids at Wilmington um, and Ohio has had a lot of poverty, as you know. I mean, they, I think at one time had the highest rate of opioid use in the country and uh, a lot of um, job loss, just like Oregon with mills, they've had a lot of job loss around manufacturing. They had a, a huge business um, in Wilmington that shut down a few years ago and Wilmington has never fully recovered. But Wilmington is about an hour from Cincinnati in one direction, about an hour from Columbus in another. Um, but a lot of the kids that, that he and his wife teach um, you know, come from impoverished homes. And then Luke working in San Francisco, I mean, Luke has some incredible experiences because you know, the homelessness issue in San Francisco is really big and um, uh, just sees that every day. You can't really go anywhere in San Francisco in most areas of San Francisco and not see a homeless person. Yeah, it's pretty profound, pretty prominent there. Uh, we like to, that's one of the favorite cities to visit, but that's definitely a characteristic that um, you, you just can't, you cannot not encounter that if you go down there. Now, I'm just enjoying this conversation, Debbie, uh, today with you. You and your husband, your children, you have encountered real life. And you have been doing real living. And these are things that I appreciate vulnerable leadership because I believe at times, sometimes, we create this illusion of what leadership is or what it should be or if it's not this model or have these components it's not legitimate or it's ineffective and we have a responsibility as, as leaders to make sure that we don't have such a linear perspective uh, on any one issue that we lose the ability to have empathy, that we lose the, the ability to communicate, and that we lose any sense of desire of making connection with people whose lives are a little bit different than ours. 
So I can see how this mindset that you have of concern and care and social justice, how it's been reproduced in your children, how does that benefit you? What have you learned? How has that been expanded on the Bethel School District School Board? Yeah, I'm glad that you asked me that question too. You're, you're really a good interviewer. Um, I think that uh, for me, um, there's some specific um, issues that are really important to me. Equity is one of them, um, as you probably already guessed. Um, I wanna make sure that all of our kids um, have a level playing field. Um, I wanna make sure that kids enter school ready to learn and we are doing some great things in Bethel. I also serve on the governance consortium of the Lane Early Learning Alliance, which is um, the regional learn early learning hub. And we have been able to expand uh, preschool options to a degree. We have what's called preschool promise and there's some funding from the state that's gone into that. So we've been able to start up some um, preschool options for families that earn too much um, for their kids to go to Head Start. So you can earn up to 200% of FPL. And um, uh, there, there isn't enough for everybody, but there are slots available um, throughout the area. Um, another program that we started was Kids in Transition to School or KITS, which is a program that um, uh, kids entering kindergarten um, go through with their parents to learn how to prepare for kindergarten. Because we know that kindergarten readiness is really important. You want a child to enter school ready to learn be successful, read by third grade. Those are all precursors for success in school. Um, and so, so entering school ready to learn, very important, equity for all, um, elevating the student voice, um, listening to our students, understanding what they need. Um, and you know, kids of color, kids with disabilities, LGBTQA kids, kids who suffered trauma, you know, kids who, um, have parents in prison, um, you know, all of those, all of those things. Um, what can we do to help our kids get what they need at school? Um, we provide social and emotional supports as well as in education. And sometimes those social emotional supports are um, as important as academic success, sometimes more important um, because kids just need to feel safe and they just need to feel welcomed and loved. Um, improving graduation rates. Um, but those other things I talked about, they, you know, if we do those things, that's gonna help improve graduation rates. And we, we have done that in Bethel. We have an alternative high school, Kalapuya. Uh, Kalapuya is for kids that um, just are finding they're not successful at Willamette um, for a variety of reasons. Um, but Kalapuya is really amazing in that, um, you know, we've increased the rigor um, but it's a different school setting. Um, kids that aren't successful in a giant campus like Willamette can do very well at Kalapuya. Um, I'm really proud that Bethel uh, established that high school. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think about 2004, 2005, um, I think is when we started. Um, so so those, those areas definitely, um, I think that those are focus areas for me and we're doing a superintendent search right now. Um, so elevating 
equity and looking for somebody that represents diversity. Um, that's really important to me as well. I, I know that, you know, you're, you're Latinx, um, you know what it was like growing up and not seeing people in leadership positions that looked like you. Um, you still believed that you could do whatever you wanted to do. There was something inside you, you know, maybe you had the support that the outside support um, in family to encourage you, or maybe it was just something that was instilled deep inside you to know that I, I can be successful. This is what I want to do. Um, but not every child has that belief. And the more people that we can have teaching them, um, working with them in all kinds of ways um, in the school setting, including in the district office, um, you know, leading the entire school district the more opportunities we can have people that look like them, um, the more future leaders we can help uh, prepare. And I think that's our job to do that. So as the world changes, we need to change as well. And we need to recognize that just because we have equal, what we think is equal opportunity, it isn't always set up to be fair. And so there are things we can do to, um, like I said, level the playing field. And so we, and we need to learn. We need to learn from the people that can teach us, people with lived experience. What, 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 was, what, what did you go through? I'm sure I could do an interview with you and you could tell me about all the times that um, you might've been qualified for something, but you didn't have a chance to get that job or the promotion or you know whatever it was. Well, I think it's really important what you just said, a couple of things. I'd like to address is the children being able to read by the time they're three with the kits program. Uh, we went through that. Third grade, third grade, not three. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, the kids. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And how the kits program supports that. I still get emails from the kits program like once a month. You do. Oh, yeah. that's great. <laughs> and so when we, when I was in Springfield Rotary years ago and they had the Rotary Reading Program, one of the books that I read at that time about why the Rotary Reading Program was so important was because the prison system in America could locate communities where children were, if they, by the time they were seven, if they were still illiterate, then those were the communities that they targeted to build prisons in because they knew that if a child could not read by the time they were seven, there was the more than 60 or 70% or exact percentage that they would end up most uh, within that demographic to go to prison. And so the, the data was there, the research was there, and the pr American prison system was designed, let's go to the communities where we know there's uh, no educational advancement and we'll build a prison there because we'll have a population there uh, within the prison profit system that we have here in America. And as far as, far as you know, our, was our mother, our mother, my mother and father, they didn't get a chance to go to school. They were the oldest. Uh, they were both Depression era babies. They grew up in the civil rights era of this country, uh, segregated schools, all of that. And so our mother was always, you, you have to learn to read, you have to do good in school. In our family growing up, 
because of the, the degree of illiteracy in the neighborhoods that we grew up, our mother would, father, my mother especially, would not even let us speak Spanish at home. It had to be English. And, we've, and that was very common back then because there was no bilingual education. And I remember going to school first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. Kids would show up that couldn't read or write or speak English very well, and then they'd send them home because they said, well, we can't teach you. We can't help you. And so they would get sent back to what was already a, a very difficult, for lack, I don't know if this is the right word or not, but an illiterate situation because there was no way for them to learn to acquire that skill that they needed uh, to be effective. And so I saw that transition, uh, not the transition, but that dichotomy of, of, that, of that philosophy of time. And so I see the benefit now, the, the beauty of why we need to have bilingual education opportunities for kids when they come to school here so that they can be effective, effectively learn, effectively receive and absorb information. Uh, because the, the, the U.S. Edu public education system has its benefits, but only if you can properly learn. And I, I like the alternative high schools. Not everyone learns the same. Not everyone absorbs information the same. Uh, one of my youngest daughter from my first marriage, she was struggling in Springfield High School, went to Gateways and graduated with honors, had a great experience there. Uh, so it was very different. So I like the idea that it, within uh, the American education system, they're starting to make these kind of adjustments and understand that uh, kids do learn differently, but they're also making adjustments for the amount of unhoused youth, uh, the youth that come to school hungry every day, the youth that have so many different uh environmental factors that you're surprised they're even showing up at all. What have you learned being a school board member in Bethel about some of the best practices as, a, as an educational leader about how you can help serve that segment of our community and our population to be successful? Well, I think in Bethel, um, you know, we have for a very long time recognized that our kids have some serious social emotional needs. Um, we have a great nutrition program. Um, some of our schools, uh, because of the number of kids that um, qualify for free lunch, you know, the kids get, everybody gets free lunch. Um, we have a breakfast program. Um, so a lot of kids eat breakfast and lunch at school. Um, we've had a program called Snack, Back, Snack Pack that Trillium funded, actually, um, that uh, sent home a, a pretty substantial snack on Fridays for the weekend, um, had things in it that would constitute like a breakfast and lunch and then snacks beyond that. Um, and we've had other programs that um, we've ran as well, just um, give kids that little extra um, nutrition to see them through till they're back in school. Um, we have summer lunch sites. So when school isn't in session, we can feed kids. Uh, we have food pantries at Willamette High School in Kalapuya. Uh, we also have the Produce Plus program at Kalapuya. Um, that's a program that Trillium funds. Um, uh, we, it, it's also at um, uh, the arts 
and technology academy in Springfield and there is a site in Eugene too and I'm not recalling where that is but um, I mean there's there's multiple sites there's about 25 sites 30 sites throughout Lane County um, where Produce Plus is offered but because of COVID that's really been restricted um, because not every site can meet the social distancing requirement. Kalapuya was able to pivot to um, drive-through because of the way they're set up. Um, there's a, a long access road that you can enter from Royal that goes to the side and behind Prairie Mountain, the K-8 school. And you can get to the Bethel Farm from there. You can't really get to Kalapuya. You'd still have to walk over a grassy area. You can't get to their parking lot, but you can drive through and, um, and because of that, people could pick up their Produce Plus um, and then, well, actually you can drive through. I'm sorry, I, I got that wrong. You can, because there has to be a, a exit. There's, you know, the entrance and exit. But anyway, um, people can drive through and they can get produce, whatever it is for the week. It varies uh, fresh, but it's some, some type of fresh fruits and vegetables, seasonal. It has to be shelf stable. Um, and then usually there's extra um, items that can be provided with that. So Food for Lane County will sometimes get extra like peanut butter or nut butter or canned, some sort of canned food like pumpkin or, uh, or beans or something like that. So, you know, people can get that supplemental. Um, that's the plus. Bread supplies and other um, shelf-stable uh, items. So, it, and it's been amazing. They, they do such um, great distribution there that even when we looked at figures from 2019 and compared them to 2020, we thought that we were going to see far fewer people served in 2020. But, but just because of Kalapuya, Bethel Farm, it actually increased in 2020. So um, pretty amazing. Where we were down in South Texas, Debbie, we were in the poorest county in the nation, Cameron County, Texas. Their economy there was three and a half times worse than the rest of the state of Texas and five times worse than the national average. If I remember, it was right at 85% of the children that went to the schools there all qualified for free meals. So there as well, they, offer, they, they fed the kids free breakfast, free lunch, any, any food that was left over at, in the evenings they would send home with kids uh, so that they would have something to eat at home. And there was, that was the first time I was exposed to the reality of how big of a scale uh, f being food challenged really is in America. <clears throat> what do we as leaders, community leaders, what do we need to know about it, number one? And is it really our problem to have to try to, you know, because sometimes, you know, we all have our, well, that's not really my problem. That's somebody else's problem, right? So is it really our problem in your estimation? You see it every day. Why should we be concerned about kids and families having enough food? Well, when kids don't have enough food, um, they're not going to be active learners. They're not going to be engaged learners. Um you know, if their parents don't have enough food, um, they can't be good parents. Um, they can't do well in the workforce. Um, and it isn't just food, you know, um, it's nutritious food. It's nutrient dense food. It's food that um, 
you know, doesn't just fill us up, but it um, really helps to make us healthy because we know we need to get that fresh fruit and vegetable in our diet. Um, and Food for Lane County, I just can't say enough about what they do in the community. Um, being able to, you know, they're a food bank, so they take food in, they distribute it out to the many food pantries um, that then families can go to to get food. But I, I think that we all as community members need to, um, you know, we need to care about the health of our community. We need to care about everybody. Um, you know, there are always going to be people that um, need help. And those of us that are doing well, those of us that, you know, are maybe not doing as well, we still need to care. Um, and we can all help in our own way. You know, I think it's really interesting that often I'll, um, I'll be looking at social media and I'm, I'm in several forums. And there's one that's for people in Lane County that, um, you know, they may need just some type of help. And they'll reach out on this forum and it's heartwarming to see all of the responses that come in. And a lot of times the responses are from people that are struggling just like they are, but they might have something that they need. I'll see somebody say, Hey, I've got some diapers that I can bring you. You know, I'm not going to use all of these until um, I get paid again. And so I can bring you like a dozen diapers or, I mean, just things like that. So, I mean, we, we as a community, if we can think that way, you're a Rotarian. So, you know, uh, you know, Rotary members get it. That's why they're Rotarians. They want to serve their community. They recognize early learning is important. They, they've eradic helped eradicate polio. Um, you know, they recognize that uh, there's a need for disaster relief. Um, and we, we had it recently in our own community when um, the wildfire destroyed um, uh, McKen part of Mackenzie Bridge, Blue River. Um, and so we, uh, you know, we understand it more acutely now, but Rotarians understood it that, you know, when there Hurricane Katrina, there were, you know, other um, natural disasters, they stepped in to help. Um, but sometimes we don't see the um, struggles in our own community you know, we, we don't, if we don't have, like I said, I didn't know that there was as much poverty out there as actually existed until I saw it firsthand. Mm -hmm. So I, that educated me. Um, and I think there are a lot of people out there that believe that somebody's homeless because they don't have the will to work, you know, just because they're lazy, you know, or they, they're abusing substances. Um, and so they, they don't really understand how devastating um, trauma can be for someone and how mental illness can um, create barriers to employment. And then also how um, expensive it is to live here. And it just takes one, you know, big bill um, or one mistake that somebody can make. Um, and if they can't afford their rent, they're evicted and then they can't get into any place else. So, I mean, I think all of those things and we as a community can help. We can give money to Food for Lane County. Food for Lane County is doing amazing work. I would encourage anyone listening to this interview to go to their website to see what they're doing. 
um, because it really is incredible. And Trillium is a partner with them. We sponsor the Produce Plus program, like I told you. We also sponsor a uh, voucher program called VeggieRx that focuses on um, certain uh, members with chronic conditions. Um, and we have sponsored the snack pack in the past. I hope um, that we might be able to do that again. Um, but we'll be working on a lot of other initiatives around um, better serving the BIPOC community, um, offering Produce Plus in um, areas where um, uh, we know that the BIPOC community is underserved, uh, rural communities that are underserved, LGBTQA um, communities that are underserved. So we'll be um, hopefully expanding, <coughs> excuse me, in some of those areas. But um, I think those are some of the things we as a community can do. Um, and if we, and if somebody listening doesn't have money to give to Food for Lane County, um, right now because of COVID, it's hard to volunteer but eventually there'll be lots of volunteer opportunities again to go in and um, you know, that's something that we can all do. And that's something that Rotarians do and are committed to do and that's to volunteer. People become a Rotarian because they have a heart for service. So they volunteer, if they can, they give money, um, but they support uh, the business community as well and recognize that the business community provides jobs um, and is struggling right now. Small businesses, locally owned businesses are struggling. So the other thing that I would tell anyone watching this is, you know, they employ a lot of uh, people that are on the Oregon health plan or that, that are just above the, you know, the edge of uh, being able to be on the Oregon health plan. And, you know, those restaurant workers, those um, small business uh, employees, they need those jobs. So we have to continue to give our business to um, our local businesses. Restaurants are open as of today for inside dining, right? Mm -hmm. So we can start going back to restaurants again. Um, I, I still, uh, Pat and I, um, you know, we, we went to restaurants, uh, we sat outside. Sometimes it was a little chilly, but not impossible. I think that's something we all learned, right? Um, the temperatures are mild enough here that as long as we, we're not getting wet, as long as there's a, a canopy and a patio heater, we're fine. But anyway, uh, Mark, I just really appreciate being part of this. Um, I appreciate that you ask me and, um, and I love your view of leadership. I think all of us can be leaders. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I saw something today and I, I probably won't quote it right, but I think it said, if you don't believe or if you believe that you're too good for service, then you will never be a leader because leaders always have a heart for service. Leaders will go out and do the, um, the work, uh, the service work that it takes because they understand that that's how you lead. You lead by example. Very good. Well, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we've had with us today, Debbie Farr. She is the manager of community relations at Trillium Community Health Plans. She is also a school board member for the Bethel School District. Uh, Debbie, thank you for participating with Molina Leadership Solutions, year-long project, Women in Leadership. Thank you for sharing so much of your story, the vulnerability of your story, the experiences of your leadership. 
Uh, we look forward to seeing your continued, sincere, emphatic efforts uh, to the residents uh, and where you live and the school district in which you live, and, as well as supporting your husband and his work as an elected official. He's doing great work too. Looking forward to interviewing him as opportunity pre 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 presents. But you and your husband are profound, impactful leaders in our community. It's not by accident. You have, a, you have put your hands to the plow and it's very evident. Thank you, Mark. And I appreciate you so much. Thank you. you have a very good day. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.